we started to see early was this boom in second home sales. And I think that was driven because of the timing. It was March. People started to think about their summers. You know, are we going to be stuck in our house for six or seven months? We can't travel anywhere. You can't go to Europe. So you started to see a lot of home sales take place. I'm from New Jersey and the boom on the Jersey shore was incredible. Everybody started buying second homes on the Jersey shore. That was Rich DiNicola speaking about just one of the many impacts COVID-19 has had on the residential real estate industry. Residential real estate trends, opportunities, and the future, and how you might capitalize on those, will be our focus on the next two episodes of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Well, hello, Looking Forward listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to focus on the residential real estate business. In part one of this two-part series, episode number 81 of Looking Forward, we're going to look at how the residential real estate industry has evolved over the past few decades and how business in the United States differs from some other parts of the world. We'll look at COVID-19's dramatic impact on the industry, and we'll ask our guest expert what concerns him most about residential real estate these days. And speaking of our guest expert, he's Rich DiNicola. Rich DiNicola currently serves as the Chief Operating Officer for the Realogy Expansion Brands, which includes Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate and ERA. He is responsible for domestic and international business operations, financial management, franchise performance consulting, products and partnerships, network engagement, and brand growth strategy for the portfolio. Prior to his current role, Rich served as Chief Operating Officer at Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, as well as Senior Vice President of Membership Development. During his tenure, the brand more than doubled its franchised office count and expanded to 16 new states and the Bahamas. Before joining Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Rich served as National Vice President of Franchise Sales for Coldwell Banker, overseeing the brand growth and mergers acquisition strategies in both the United States and Canada. Rich has served in a variety of sales and operational roles for Realogy Franchise Group since 2004. Well, hi, Rich. Welcome to Looking Forward. Good morning, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. We've got a sunny day. I'm near Philadelphia. You're down in Florida. There's always sun in Florida. Well, almost always sun in Florida. Rich, what was it that made you decide to make real estate your career? It's been a successful career for you. How did you get into that? Sure. So, Jeff, uh, you know, I grew up in a real estate household. My mother was a real estate agent for uh, 20 years until she passed away in, in the mid-2000s. But she, in the time that she worked as a real estate agent, you know, I really grew up in that environment. From the time I was five or six years old, she used to take me into 
the real estate office after school. She'd pick me up from school and, and bring me to the office and, and, and I'd be uh, helping out. She would subcontract me to the other agents to do <laughs> mailings and print their labels and, and do all their, uh, uh, I don't want to say all, but they, they do a lot of the, the research work that had to be done to find people's addresses. Cause you know, when you're five or six years old, you know how to use a phone book. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that can help. But um, you know, from, from the time I was five or six years old, uh, I was, I was in a real estate environment uh, every day. That kind of is what led to, I would say, an interest in the real estate business, just because I was always around it. And I think what I liked about what I saw was that it was something entirely different every day that um, you know I was exposed to, and, and that I saw my mom working on. Whether it was you know one transaction is never the same as another transaction. There's always different things that you have to accomplish and negotiate, different kinds of clients and different kinds of homes. So that stuff was pretty interesting to see. However, I would say, you know, how did I end up in the real estate industry is, is kind of by complete accident, which is, is a funny story in and of itself, because I was, you know, this, this uh, 21-year-old male getting out of college and, and uh, kind of going off trying to figure out how can I go to, to law school the day I graduated college. My father retired, so asking him for another 150 grand for law school was not in the cards, <laughs> right? That wasn't going to fly. So I, uh, I decided, you know, if I'm going to be dedicated to law school, I'm going to pay for this myself. Let me, uh, let me dip my toe in the water. And I went in, uh, to the local university, Fairleigh Dickinson University in Madison, New Jersey. And I got uh, a paralegal certificate. And when I got the paralegal certificate, I want to say it was sometime 2003 or four, uh, right when the dot-com bust was happening. Mm. And at the time, the big craze to get your resumes out there was on monster.com. And I remember sending out hundreds of, of my copies of my resume, applying for everything under the sun. And of course, nobody was hiring. And my parents on the sidelines were saying, hey, what can we do to help you find this job? We know you won't want to get involved. My mom's saying, hey, I know all these people in real estate. I can get you involved with attorneys. I can get you here. I can get you there. And of course, I was just that stubborn 21, 22-year-old male, whatever it was at the time, 23, um, that was determined to go get my own first job. And, and so finally, I get this call from a company called Sendent Corporation, which is the predecessor company to Realogy, the company I work for now. And I went in for the interview and got the job. And of course, I got home that night all proud that I was able to figure out how to get the job myself. And, and my mom said, where'd you get this job? And I said, Sendent Corporation. And she said, you know, one of the brands that they own is Cole Banker. I've worked there for 20 years. I know everybody there. I probably could have helped you get that job. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the good news of, of the, whole, uh, the, the whole process was, uh, you know, I did prove to myself that I could do it on my own without help from anybody. What I've learned over the last 18 years I've been with the company is I will take help from anybody that I can get it from now. So, you know, you, you go through some of these things in life that uh, you try and prove something to yourself and then you, you realize it probably could happen a lot easier if you utilize the resources around you. Yes, it's a great story. A couple thoughts come to my mind, Rich. One is how our parents often can influence us, in this case, in a positive way about what we might do for a living. And it wasn't as if your parents pushed you into a real estate career when you finished college, but you were exposed to real estate as a child by your mother. And that was how you first got introduced to it. And I won't get into it, but I can think of some things that my father, for example, did with me that got me very interested in communications when I was a kid. So that was interesting. The other thing that was interesting is you found the job by yourself. Your mother said, wow, I could have helped you find that job with ease because I knew all these people. It reminds me of something that 
a gentleman by the name of Tony Mazur told me many years ago, I'm sure Tony's long gone, but I mentioned this in a book I wrote years ago. He said, what you can do by yourself is limited. What you can do with others is limitless. Exceptional quote and uh, certainly holds true. Yes. Now, Rich, just briefly, I'd like you to talk about Realogy Holdings Corporation, what they own and where they are and that sort of thing. Sure. So Realogy is an incredibly large uh, real estate organization, publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It's got four distinct business units that comprise the company, uh, the first of which is known as Realogy Franchise Group. That's the division that I work in. And specifically what we do is franchise some of the world's uh, largest real estate brands. We go find uh, real estate brokerage operators that are looking for ways to grow their business faster. And we work with them on, on franchise opportunities. So we will provide a brand and systems, tools, technology, infrastructure, support, recruiting materials for them to go out and do a better job serving com uh, consumers and recruiting real estate agents to work for their companies and, uh, and, and ultimately buying other companies to grow their business so that as they develop this business platform, our goal is for them to have an asset that is saleable uh, at the conclusion of the franchise agreement if they want to go sell their company and put themselves in a position to have an asset that, that provides them more wealth over uh, that time period. When you look at at what those brands are at Realogy, if, if you've never heard of Realogy, you, you've in all, all likelihood have, have most likely heard of one of our brands. So we, we currently own and operate and franchise out, starting with the two brands I, I represent and work for are Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate and ERA Real Estate. And then we also franchise out Caldwell Banker, Century 21 Real Estate, Sotheby's International Realty, and uh, Corcoran. Yeah, they're well known. Is it an international company, Rich, and where is it headquartered? Yeah, uh, headquarters is in Madison, New Jersey, which is a uh, small, I would say, commuter town, probably about uh, 30, 35 minutes outside of Manhattan, beautiful area of New Jersey. So we're, we're headquartered there in Madison. And then when you look at, at the representation of all of our brands collectively, we, we have about 200,000 real estate agents affiliated with those brands in the United States, and then about another 100,000 uh, in a little over 115 countries around the world. Wow. It's huge. And honestly, until I met you, Rich, which wasn't that long ago, I'd never heard of Realogy, but I certainly heard of those companies. Madison, that was the town where Fairleigh Dickinson is located, correct? Correct. In fact, uh, the, the university is right across the street from our office there in Madison. There's a place I'm going to have to visit because I love visiting college campuses and it sounds like it's a nice little town. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous campus. Yeah, going to have to get there. Rich, as you may know, here on Looking Forward, we like to look into the future a bit. But before we start thinking about the future, we like to take a look a little backwards first. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you think residential real estate has evolved over, say, the past two or three decades, which is kind of about how long you've been in the business. And we'll start, Rich, with the United States. We're going to talk about the rest of the world separately. Sure. When you look back probably two decades, you know, I, I think 
in that time frame, you know, going back to then, I, I would say that the real estate industry was very, I don't know if controlled's the right word, but it, it was very micromanaged, I would say, by the real estate brokers uh, that, that were in the business. So the brokerage owner really was the controller of information. And Jeff, I'm sure you've got plenty of listeners here that will remember buying homes in maybe the, the 80s or 90s where you had to go to the real estate broker and then the real estate agent would, would pull out this thick MLS book that had the listings. And you know the only way that you as a consumer would have access to any of the data about what was for sale and, and what the details were about the properties would be to go to that brokerage and find an agent that was going to be willing to give you the access to the data to share. And I kind of refer to that that period in time as the broker controlled portion of the real estate or time frame of the real estate industry. And then over time, competitively in the real estate industry, there were different models that came out competitively on how real estate agents were compensated. And real estate agents went from working in an environment where there was, you know, what we refer to as a traditional commission split to some new companies came out that started paying agents 95 or 100% commission splits. And that is kind of what morphed the industry into, I would say, the agent-driven era of the industry. And those agents, you know, they they were out generating a lot of the, the business that came into the brokerages. And, you know, it was a lot of sphere of influence and referrals, which, you know, still is a big portion of the industry, the majority of the, the work that gets done today. But the agents really were, were took kind of, I would say, charge of, uh, of the real estate brokerage business at that point, based on the different competitive models that were there. And then, you know, in the late 90s, when the internet came to play and data started being more available direct to consumers, um, and certainly with the advent of different home search portals, uh, of which many people are familiar with that are out there, whether it's Zillow or Realtor.com or others, you know, what you really saw was an amalgamation of data around neighborhoods, communities, homes, appraisal values, potential values of, of homes, those sorts of things. Consumers didn't need to go to the, the brokerage owner for that data anymore. And it really became the consumer-driven era of the real estate industry. And I think you know, what we saw during that time period was, at least in, in my experience in my career, is, is probably the most dramatic changes that, that occurred in the real estate industry, pretty well driven by technology. And I think what, what ultimately happened was you, you had consumers, and, and if you look at a lot of the surveys over the last decade or so, you, you see it, you know, consumers more and more, although they have the access to more access to the data, more and more they are seeking the use of real estate agents. There's actually a declining percentage of consumers that don't use a real estate agent at this point, because I think while there's a lot of data out there, there's not a lot of making sense of what it all means. And I think we've seen home values, obviously over the last two years have, have skyrocketed around the country. And now you're dealing with assets that are more and more in value. And I think people realize that that is just so beneficial to use a real estate expert to guide through the actual transaction. So you went from from brokerages being, I would say, you know, the micromanagers of the industry to the agents being the micromanagers of the industry, and now you know it's it's a consumer driven industry now, and, and the consumers go out and you know they they follow the process they want to follow, they follow the information they want to follow, and they're really looking for a trusted advisor to guide them rather than provide them all of that information. Very interesting the way you talk about that evolution. Let's look at the rest of the world. You can't speak for every place in the world. You would just have to give examples or generalize. How is what you've just said, Rich, 
about what's happened in the U.S. similar to or different from other parts of the world. Were we ahead in the United States? Were we behind? Was everybody kind of moving in lockstep with these changes? I think I think one of the biggest differentiators that I've observed from the U.S. versus several countries internationally is that in the United States, we've got a cooperative system amongst real estate brokers, which is the MLS, the Multiple Listing Service. And in the United States, there's about I don't know, six or seven hundred of them that that operate at this point, which has consolidated quite a bit. Uh, over the last decade as well. There used to be over, uh, I think, 900 MLS systems in the country. I mentioned that because there is this cooperative system where people feed the data on homes to, and everybody has access to the homes that are for sale. Typically, there are exceptions. There are markets in the United States that actually don't have a, a multiple listing system. You know, I don't want to say it's the Wild West, but probably the, the closest thing to it. You know, that is is actually somewhat unique in the U.S. And when you, you know, we've worked on um, franchise transactions with folks from different countries. Africa, for example, there is no multiple listing system there. And the folks that run, or, you know, with the time we had the conversation with that, those people, there, there was not an MLS system there. It's, it's been a, a year or two, but, you know, the, the ability to market properties in the most meaningful way for a consumer, I think has done the best in the US because of the multiple listing system and the data flow. And when you go to, to some of these countries, you know, I mentioned Africa, there's plenty others in the world too, where there's no MLS system and you know, you're still at the mercy of the real estate broker to, to provide the data to the consumer about the property. Wow, so in that sense, we have more of a collegial kind of an environment that we operate in the United States in terms of sharing of information and working cooperatively with other agencies? Yeah, I think that's a fair, very fair characterization. Okay. Just some follow-up questions, Rich. One you alluded to. How about consolidation in terms of the brokerages? You mentioned Realogy, right? ERA, I remember I went out there and did a consulting job in the early 90s. They're part of Realogy. Has that been a trend over the last several decades as well, not only here, but maybe elsewhere, that there are fewer of these agencies? So it's interesting. The, the, the number of agencies in the United States has actually grown. So we run in the United States, there's approximately 90,000 real estate brokerages across the U.S. Wow. I believe wholeheartedly that you are going to start to see that number come down because of the rapid pace of technological change because of you know changes to the competitive structure on on how agents are compensated you know those those are big drivers of it but when when you break down that 90,000 and I think this is pretty interesting there are uh, trade organizations out there that publish the best companies in the US and there's a very prominent one called the Real Trends 500 which is kind of the go-to list every year out of, of the top 5 published by an organization called Real Trends and 500 companies out of 90,000 overall real estate brokerages, that's that, that's one half of 1% of the real estate brokerage population. Those top 500 companies control 38.5% market share in the US. And when you break that number down even further and look at the last five years, the growth of the transaction volume of those companies, it's actually grown by nearly 10 percentage points in the last five years. So you are seeing the bigger players are getting bigger and they're doing it quickly. You have seen over the last five years, many organizations that were private real estate companies are now public on the stock exchange. Like Realogy is not the only public 
residential real estate focused company on the stock exchange. There's a handful of others that have, have gone public and, and I'm sure there's others that are looking at the opportunity to do so. But what comes with that is a lot of money from investors, right? And that's what um, some of these companies are doing. They're, they've raised a lot of money through stock sales and going public, and they're using that war chest of money to go and capture market share and grow. So, you know, when I look at big money, Wall Street money, more and more of it coming into the real estate industry, obviously, when you, when you see a time period of a high volume or a high unit count of real estate sales and then high or higher and higher sales prices, you know, investors look at the overall commission pool and transaction pool that gets generated and say, hey, this is a pretty lucrative spot and industry to be in and invest in. And, and you're starting to see this incredible influx of venture capital money, private equity money, Wall Street money into the real estate space. And it's really driving a lot of change. So when I say I believe that there's going to be a lot of consolidation, I think it's, it's you know, you just the number of the data clearly shows it's happening for the bigger companies. But then when you throw in the ability to have huge sums of money invested in technology and artificial intelligence. And I think you're going to start seeing investments in blockchain technology and all these things that have the potential to give companies that have the resources one-ups over the others. I just don't see an environment that is, is such a great environment to be a mom and pop or a small business and have to compete against that. I'm not saying it's impossible because you're always going to have these companies where the owner of the company is the number one agent in the company because that's predominantly what they do. They go out, they sell, and they manage the business. I just don't think it's going to be nearly as easy for the owners of those types of businesses, the smaller businesses with 10 or 15 real estate agents in them, the really local companies, I don't think it's going to be as easy for them to compete with these bigger players that have all sorts of resources to invest in the pace of change and technologies that are going to be needed to be the most efficient. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, we've seen a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the last year amongst the different technology providers in the real estate space. So we're even seeing those guys consolidate quite a bit. You know, we're seeing a lot of real estate companies go out there and establish relationships on mortgage banking uh, and on title insurance. Um, those are two biggies. You're seeing people expand to property management. So the more, the more different businesses that you can be involved in, the more revenue you're going to generate and the more revenue you generate, the more you can reinvest back in the business. And if, if smaller companies don't do that, they're not going to be on the same competitive playing field as the, those that are doing it. It sounds so much like what happens in other industries, consolidation and the mom and pops, whether it be the little drugstore or the little supermarket drowned out by the bigger companies. Rich, COVID-19 tremendous impact on the world. How do you see it affecting what you do and the home buyers and the home sellers? Speak a little bit about that, please, Rich. Yeah. So let me start on the business side with our franchisees, the real estate brokerages. When the lockdowns got announced here in the United States, uh, March 13th, I believe it was, the first thing that my mind went to was I couldn't believe that that's the state of what was happening. And I, I started thinking about, you know, how, how obviously do we react to this as a business? And the first thing that came to my mind was how many of our small business owners, because most of our franchisees are, are small business owners, you know, in the grand scheme, we've got, we've got a couple of really sizable companies, but they're still, compare them to publicly traded companies and other things, they're still small business owners. So how many of our small business owners really are going to be able to survive the economic impact of 
being shut down for potentially two weeks and not being able to conduct any business? How many of them have two weeks of cash on hand? And then I think, you know, the first week went by and ended and it was like, you know, in some of these geographies, I was in, in, in New Jersey at the time where I lived, you know, it became pretty clear that this was not a two week thing. And and these, these shutdowns were going to go on and on. And so, you know, immediately we went to work trying to figure out with our franchisees who, who had some level of appropriate reserves. And I would tell you, I think the pandemic has completely redefined what an appropriate level of reserves should be for a small business. That was a, a, an incredible, I think, learning experience to go through. Highly stressful. You know, we, we were doing everything we could to make sure that our franchisees had the tools and resources they needed to at least follow our lead and do things that we were doing as a corporate entity. We had to make a lot of hard decisions at Realogy. You know, we, we had to furlough employees. Like, you know, our, our revenue was basically shut down too because we, we make money when home sale transactions happen. And if home sales aren't happening, you can't spend more than you're bringing in. So, you know, we, we had a lot of tough staffing decisions. We had a lot of tough negotiations with vendors and, and we had to go through a lot of those business things that, you know, you really learn from. And of course, what it ends up highlighting for you after the fact is there, there, there was a lot there that we didn't think we could live without that ultimately we did. And, and we're very lucky being in the real estate industry. You know, there was a bounce, right? While home sales weren't happening for a period of time and showings of homes in, in different geographies weren't happening, the demand kept building and building and building and building. And as those restrictions started letting up in certain areas of the country, what you saw was just this explosion of home sale transactions taking place. You know, where COVID really impacted that was on a few fronts. What we started to see early was this boom in second home sales. And I think that was driven because of the timing. It was March. People started to think about their summers. You know, are we going to be stuck in our house for six or seven months? We can't travel anywhere. You can't go to Europe. So you started to see a lot of home sales take place. I'm from New Jersey and the boom on the Jersey shore was incredible. Everybody started buying second homes on the Jersey shore. Um, you know, if you're in New York, you're buying stuff in the Hamptons or in Long Island. If you're in different sections of Florida, the Carolinas, you were buying coastal homes. So you saw this enormous spike in second home sales. Second thing that really took hold was this idea around remote work. Obviously, companies were shut down. And now suddenly you had, and, and we had a lot of employees like this, and, and you know, you had this environment where husband and wife each needed a home office. And, you know, maybe they had a desk in a bedroom somewhere because they never really had to be on Zoom or Microsoft Teams. And suddenly every meeting was on either Zoom or Teams. And, you know, if, if you've got a, a dual working family and now they need two home offices and, you know, companies are starting to announce, hey, you know, we don't think we're ever going to bring you back to the office. We're just going to shut the office down and save a lot of money. Suddenly your requirements for what you need in your home have dramatically changed. And, and that drove a lot of the demand. Then you had all the social unrest that was happening in 2020 in the urban areas. So you combine the social unrest, you combine the effects of the pandemic in the highly populated areas. And suddenly we went from this environment where city living was the popular trend for a decade. And now everybody wanted to get out of the cities. You had people leaving the cities to stay with their parents in the suburbs. And then suddenly they realized, hey, this isn't so bad having an acre of land or a half an acre of land. Maybe this is a better place to raise my kids. Maybe the city stuff isn't so great after all. And then on the commuting front, Jeff, uh, some of these companies went to hybrid schedules where maybe you only had to come into the office twice a week. So, you know, if you're living in Northern New Jersey or outside of Boston or, or some of these areas or, you know, Chicago, 
your commute time is an hour each way. And now suddenly you only have to go to the office once or twice a week. You know, maybe you're willing to, maybe you're willing to live an hour and a half or two hours away where it's, it's much more reasonably priced. So you started to see this, this huge boom in the suburbs outside of, of the urban areas for, for all these reasons I just mentioned. And I think that that's, and I've heard, heard it referred to a few times that this decade is going to be, be known in the real estate industry as the great reshuffling. Uh, we'll see how long it continues. I still think we're early in it because I think there's a lot of companies that haven't pulled the plug on lease space. And I think they will as leases come up. You know, at, at Realogy, we made the decision and we pulled the plug on two thirds of our corporate office. We moved the majority of our staff to permanently working from home. We're subletting out two thirds of the office and we're going to keep a, a third of the office specifically for conference rooms, huddle space, meetup areas. And, and when you need to have a meeting with the team that you run, you bring the team in. And other than that, everybody can work from home and do their thing there. We've found that it's just as productive, if not more so. And, you know, we don't really feel like we've missed a beat on anything. So we're, we're happy with the decision we made and it's going to save the company a good amount of money. And I think as other companies come up on their leases, they're going to evaluate things and look at it. And I think you're going to see a lot of companies make this, this decision. I don't, I don't think this is a trend that's going to slow down. And I think employees are going to demand it too. Certainly a dramatic effect, as you've outlined there, Rich. You probably haven't traveled anywhere near the way that you used to before COVID, particularly to the foreign countries, because Realogy is present in over 100 countries. Similar things, in your opinion, happening to your colleagues overseas with COVID? We've got an international staff it's probably impacted them more so than it has us in the U.S. Just because so much of our business is based in the U.S., so you know that the travel for us as it started to open up, I you know I've gone back to um, I don't want to say I'm back to what my full travel schedule was, but you know probably back to 75% of what I had been doing before the pandemic. That's not the same for international folks, and a lot of it it has to do with country to country regulations, and you know some of the folks that we send out there that that we have stationed out across the globe. While while I cover states in the U.S., they cover countries, right? And their travel ability is subject to their governmental regulations. I think COVID has had a, a more severe impact to our international team members than our domestic team members, just because there's there's so much that they have to know and manage about visiting different countries and the different regulations that come into play. So they really haven't been traveling much at all. Wow. What keeps you up at night with real estate these days? Yeah. So I think, I think when you look at what has really changed over the last two years in the real estate business, and then go back to the the early 2000s, you know, the no, the number of home sale transactions that are happening in the U.S. is has pretty much increased on an annual basis by a million homes in the last two years. So in the mid 2000s, they were running somewhere around six and a half million home sales a year, a little more than that. And then obviously 2008 uh, nine happened in the Great Recession. And for about a decade, the industry was stuck at 5 million home sale transactions a year. And, you know, there was a lot of question about what's it going to take to get back to 6 million? Why are we stuck at 5 million, et cetera? You know, one of the biggest changes that, that was really brought on from the pandemic was certainly people looking at their ability to do things in different places. And, and that certainly has been probably the biggest driver of an increase in, in home sale transactions. So for 2021, a little more than 6 million homes sold. So compared to the last decade where we've been stuck at 5 million, we're now over 6 million homes sold. 
there'd be a lot more homes sold if there was actually more properties for sale. There's a couple drivers for that, but I think probably the most problematic of which is the lack of new homes construction that has taken place in the United States over the last decade. So if you go back to the 1920s, Jeff, every decade, which is when they started measuring this stuff, but in every decade, there was somewhere between 10 and 12 million homes built. And over the last 10 years, they only built 6 million. So you've got a 6 million home deficit. You've got population growth. I know people are out there citing the 2020 census showed that it's the lowest population growth rate in 50 or 60 years in the United States. But if you actually look at those numbers, there were still 25 million people added to the population in the last decade. So, you know, we didn't go backwards. We still went up by 20, that's 25 million, you know, I'm going to say it's 25 million households, but there's 25 million people. So you, you need more homes for it. So you're building less, you've got population growth. And then I think there's another really interesting piece too, which is the millennial generation. And when you look at all of the generations of homeowners in the United States, typically the way it's shaken out is that two thirds of the members of the particular generation are homeowners and one third are renters. And in the millennial generation, it, it has been up until this year, the complete flip, whereby it was one third homeowners and two thirds renters. As you would expect, I mean, we're seeing all these surveys come out that the American dream is still alive and people still wish to attain home ownership. And, you know, there, there's a belief that that these millennials are all going to become first-time home buyers. I say all, but, you know, the majority will become first-time home buyers here. And you're starting to see that shift. And the stats show that if that one-third of millennials that's currently homeowners becomes two-thirds, you will have an excess of 7 million home sale transactions a year in the U.S., now, the only way that happens is if there's 7 million homes for sale. So we've got an enormous generation that is still a couple years away from their peak for first time home buyer age. All right, you've got low interest rates now. Um, you know, they've been record lows for the last year, even if it goes back to four or 5%. And, you know, it's, it's still historically low in, in comparison to US history. And then you've got population growth and lack of new construction. You throw inflation in on top of that, which really hurts the uh, middle class and the poor more than it hurts the the upper class portion of the population. And there's an environment where you know real estate prices are going to continue to increase. There doesn't really seem to be anything that would suggest that there's going to be a deceleration in prices or that they're not going to continue to increase. There does get to be a point where the first time home buyer generation is going to be boxed out in pretty large part. Very well put. It sounds like very much a supply and demand issue and an affordability issue. One of my daughters, who is from the millennial generation, just bought a home in Philadelphia, and her sister is now looking to buy a home. There's two more millennials moving over, go. and they better hurry up based well, <laughs> one of them better hurry up based on what you said. This concludes part one of our two-part series on residential real estate trends, opportunities, and the future with our guest expert, Rich DiNicola. Please join us next time for part two of this series. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Rich or me, please contact me at my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com. And if you like this episode, I'd really appreciate your liking it or giving it a positive review on the podcast hosting site where you listen to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. 
If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.